The retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Saunier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition. We've got, uh, I think, regular format today. Some Social Security, probably some IRMA going on, the income-related monthly adjustment amount for Medicare premiums. Um, And then uh, kind of other random questions that Jim pulls out of the bag. So um, I did, I got copied on email this week that someone suggested an alternative way for him to manage his questions of the week. I'm going to ask him when he comes on here if, if he got that and if he has embraced that approach or... Uh, or not, but uh, did you did, did you see that email that came through? I did. Was that the uh, folder suggestion? No, that was the printing to PDF section. Oh, the printing to PDF suggestion. Yeah, yes, so I, I remember putting getting them all, that kind of pre-assembling them. Although I know you dynamically assemble a lot of the questions during the show, so <laughs> that might that that might, that might take a little more. Uh, planning. It's, it's so. done on the fly. <laughs> yeah. uh, remember last week, we I think it was last week because you wanted an exciting show. You tried to throw me under the bus. Um, and I just randomly, I told you to pick a month. We might try that again. You randomly chose a month. I went to that month and I clicked on an email that didn't have the little check mark next to it. That was the hard thing um, is to find one without check mark and just whatever it was, we ran with it and it worked out good for us. Yeah. That time that, that, time. that still feels a little scary to me, but, <laughs> but maybe we'll do it again. I don't know. But uh, today we're going to change up the structure a little bit. I want to try to catch up with a bunch of the annuity questions we got in, in way back in June when it was national annuity awareness month. And here it is uh, almost October. And we've been getting annuity questions in throughout that time as well. And since Social Security and annuities are very, very similar, they're kissing cousins, uh, I thought we would do one Social Security, one IRMA, and one annuity question. But uh, today there will be two Social Security, even though I just said we're going to go to one Social Security, one IRMA, and then one annuity to start the show off before getting into uh, other questions I kind of have a non-question question that I want to get um, taken off, uh, or at least out of my my list here. Okay. And it um, came into us 
in regards to the question you answered last week, remember for the 78-year-old widow who might be impacted by GPO? Do you remember that question? Oh, yeah. I think it was somebody trying to help their their in-law their mother. Or, or mother or mother something. Mother or mother-in-law. Yeah, yeah I forget. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And they were on their way to Social Security. So, right. uh, okay. Someone wrote in with regards to that. I'm going to ask that the question first. I'm calling it a non-question question in the sense I just would like you to clear the air for this person because I'm sure there's other people who are going to be wondering the same thing. Mm-hmm. And then I'll get into a real Social Security question. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. So this is in reference to that. Hello, Jim and Chris. You discussed in your last podcast whether the Social Security benefit of the 78-year-old widow should be decreased due to the government pension offset. You did not mention, although I could be wrong on this, whether the widow paid Social Security tax during her career. If so, GPO would not apply. Am I correct? And I thought you might have to clear the air a little bit that even yeah. if this woman did pay some into Social Security, mm-hmm. GPO may still apply. Yeah, even if she paid a lot into Social Security, that fact does not change the GPO math at all. I think what might be getting mixed up here is participating in Social Security when you have a WEP offset, the windfall elimination provision, which is the... The, the sibling of GPO, the difference is the WEP affects your own benefits, whereas GPO affects spousal or survivor benefits that you might be entitled to. The WEP has a provision where if you participated substantially in the Social Security system, in addition to having this non-covered pension for part of your career, that if you had uh, substantial participation for at least 20 years, then they start to reduce the effects of WEP until you get to 30 years of substantial social security participation, and then it goes away. So that a lot of people, you know, have heard that or have some understanding of that, that does not apply to GPO. GPO limits its effect by the dollar offset. What I mean by that is GPO is a very straightforward calculation. If you have a non-covered pension, your spousal and or survivor benefits would be reduced $2 for every $3 of the pension. Where this would impact someone who had a lot of Social Security earnings would be maybe their non-covered pension is very small. Maybe their non-covered pension is only $300 a month. Well, then their Social Security would only be reduced by $200. Very small effect, so it scales. But if you had a big non-covered pension where you were making, you know, $60,000 $60,000 a year or something as a as a pension, a non-covered pension, the um, uh, GPO offset would be $40,000, which would wipe out most Social Security benefits that you might have accrued through other Social Security. So there is no magic uh, get-out-of-jail-free card for GPO. If you have the non-covered pension, you shall be affected by GPO. Uh, if you're claiming a survivor or spousal benefit. So I'm, I'm glad she asked this question because um, that's just an, another aspect of the differences between WEP, windfall elimination provision, and, and GPO, the government pension offset. Those are related siblings, but they are not twins. They have very distinct differences. 
Okay. Well, thanks for clearing the air up for that person. I thought others may have that question mm-hmm. as well, and I figured they were messing it up with WEP. The WEP and GPO, since they're such close kissing cousins, mm-hmm. everybody convolutes the two together. Okay. This next question came from – did they give a hint? Um, no, this came in from our helpwithmysocialsecurity.com website, so that's probably why they didn't give us a hint. Okay, so uh, they are from the state. Let's see if I can think of a hint right off the top of my head. Oh, this state has a very big, salty lake. <laughs> I guess I'll just go with uh, Utah, <laughs> although there's other other salty lakes out there, but they have the great one. So They have, they have the great one, yes. <clears throat> okay, so you guess that one. Maybe Maybe my next hint will be a little harder than that. <laughs> okay. Okay, type your question here. Oh, wait, sorry. I'm reading the form. Type this your is, question. Oh, this God, is like on, uh, yeah, this is, this is like on, uh, uh, what was that show with uh, Will Ferrell in it? That he was the newscaster. He was the news guy. Oh, yeah. Anchorman. He would read, on yeah, Anchorman, yeah. where he would read anything put in front of him. He just reads it. It just goes <laughs> in his eyes and out of his mouth. <laughs> so. I think that's the first time I've ever done this, though. Reading When you send it through our form, folks, it literally shows me the form. And it begins, type your question here. And I've never read that before until now. So I guess my brain is tired yeah. after coming up with such a hard hint <laughs> yeah, on Utah. I guess. Okay, besides type your question here, he then wrote, Jim and Chris, I submit this question on the Retirement and IRA show form. I want to make sure uh, I understand the spousal boost Mm -hmm. and how it's determined by the lower wage earner's age. However, are you able to delay filing for the spousal benefit if your spouse, the higher wage earner, has already filed? For example, say there is a three-year age gap between spouses. If the higher wage earner turns on their personal benefit at age 67, their full retirement age, but the lower wage earner is only 64, can the lower wage earner delay three more years before filing for the spousal boost You might want to explain what he's meaning by spousal boost because that's not a technical term. Before delaying for the spousal boost to ensure they get the full 50% or by virtue of the higher wage earner filing before the lower wage earner reached their full retirement age, are they forced to take the reduced spousal amount? Thank you. Hmm. Yeah, you might want to clear the air on that question. Yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting question. So um, what he's talking about with the spousal boost is officially called the spousal offset. And this is uh, described um, and called this because when you have your own benefit, your own Social Security benefit, but you're also entitled to a spousal benefit, let's say your own benefit is $1,000 a month, but the spousal benefit would be $1,500 a month, Um they technically pay you your own first, your thousand, and then the spousal offset, the extra 500 to get you up to the total spousal. So they, they want to pay you your own benefit first. And actually they, they do. It's not that they want to. They, they, that's just how it works. You are always paid your own benefit first. 
And then if you're owed a spousal offset, they give it to you. If your benefit is at or larger than the spousal benefit, then the spousal offset is zero and and you don't get any benefit for uh, being the spouse of some other wage earner. So in his example, I have some good news and some bad news, I'll, I'll say. So the good news is you can, in fact, if you're if the higher wage earner in his example, age 67, already filed, uh, has filed, and you are below your full retirement age, you can file for just your own benefit. You are not forced or deemed to take the spousal benefit. So you would be allowed to take your own and then wait until your full retirement age to get the full spousal offset. But full, I have to put in quotes because that doesn't get you to the 50%. Because of what I initially described, they're always paying you your own benefit first and then paying you the offset. So let's use the numbers I started with. Let's say your full retirement age benefit is 1000 but the spousal benefit is 1500 the only way you're ever going to get 1500 is if you wait until your full retirement age to claim both. If you claim early, your 1000 is going to be reduced. If you then claim the spousal at full retirement age, you'll get the $500 offset. But that offset is now piled on top of a reduced own benefit. So you won't get the 50%. It'll be reduced. And the fact that you waited to claim the spousal until full retirement age didn't do anything except protect you from also reducing the offset. If she were to claim, or uh, I'm, well, I was assuming, I'm sorry, uh, if the lower wage earner is 64 and claimed both her own and her spousal, went in to just go ahead and turn everything on, both her own benefit and the spousal offset would be reduced due to early claiming. So you do kind of have two controls when you claim your own, when you claim the spousal, and you could in fact choose to reduce your own a bit, but then keep the spousal offset unaffected by waiting to full retirement age to turn that on. Um, but it's not, again, going to get you the math to get you back up to the 50%. You've got to get to your full retirement age before you, um, uh, get 100% of what you're owed uh, at that point. Um, now, there might be a strategy, and I'm thinking out loud here, I'd have to look at the numbers in a certain circumstance, but there might be a strategy where if you turned on at 64, you could then um, uh, suspend your benefit at full retirement age, thus re earning delayed retirement credits to help offset the early claiming reduction that you were receiving to scratch, kind of claw and scratch your way back up to the 50% situation, but you'd have to forego all benefits during that suspension. So um, I'd have to look at the math on that and see how practical that is, uh, depending on the circumstances with the dollars and, and all that. But, but that might be a possible way um, if you've already pulled the trigger on something like this and then regretted it uh, later on. Everyone should be aware that once you get to your full retirement age, you still have the ability to suspend your benefit and then receive delayed retirement credits during suspension and then turning your benefit back on. That is one of the ways to um, offset, if you will, other you know early claiming decisions that you made. Uh, and that might potentially be 
a solution here. But uh, I don't know if they've actually already filed or not, if they're thinking about it, etc. But you could do what he's claim they're claiming they want to do, which is turn on just the own their own, wait till full retirement age to get the spousal, but it won't get to the full fifty percent in that scenario. All righty, excellent. Um, before we get to Irma, I'm going to pause for station identification. <laughs> And there is this email that I dug up because first he came up with what I think is even a superior idea to the gentleman who said to print as a PDF. Not that I have anything against that idea, but I really think what this guy suggested I do, I'm going to do. I think it's brilliant. It's so brilliant. I question why I didn't think of it to begin with. Is that the folder comment you made? Because I, in my defense, I've suggested that to you before. You have not. I not the way he has. has. You but create anyways, a folder no. for this day and then put all the, drag them over in there? No, 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 no. I'll go over his. Oh, okay. But the reason I also want to mention is first, because you mentioned the, the gentleman with the print to PDF suggestion to make my life easier. Mm-hmm. I like his folder idea, but when he sent me the folder idea, he was bumming because we answered a question of his in the past and he really wanted me to ask you his state trivia question because he thinks he's going to stump you on it. And he said, can you please use this question next time someone submits a question, you don't have a (laughs) state state. trivia. Even though they'll be in a different state, he just wanted me to. So the Utah one didn't really have one. So I'm going to kill two birds with uh, one stone here. So here's his idea. He said, um, here is some unsolicited advice on how to do your podcast email system. Use email folders. Create the following three folders in your email program. Podcast questions. And he said, as soon as you get a new podcast email, drag it right into this folder. Easy peasy. Mm -hmm. Podcast show. When you're figuring out which questions to answer on your show, drag and drop them from the questions into the show. During the show, you only need to look at this folder. After you answer a question, drag it into the third folder, which will be podcast answered. This is where questions end up after they're answered. Mm -hmm. I thought how brilliant that is. Yeah, no, that's I'm fully in support of that. That's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Now, my question is, it's probably not the correct form to ask you, but if I set this all up on my computer at the office, will it automatically appear in my iPad too? Yes. It will? Yep. Okay. <clears throat> okay. Yep. That was the all big that, thing All I that want. is synced between your devices. So you just have to set it up one place and then you'll have access to it everywhere. I think I might do that. So I do appreciate mm-hmm. this listener's question. But then he said... Um, I appreciate you answering my question on a recent show, but you didn't do my state trivia. I was hoping to stump Chris. So maybe you could use this trivia question next time you have an email without a trivia question. From the same state he's in, he's meaning, just so you know. Oh, well, I got one hint for you, Chris. It's not Utah. Okay. (laughs) But here it is. Here's the yeah. state trivia question. And folks, yeah. play along at home. State trivia question. Answer at, oh, answer at bottom. My, <laughs> I don't know why I'm reading everything in here in front of me today. State trivia question in parentheses, answer at bottom. <laughs> My state was home 
to championship hockey teams in all four of the following levels in the exact same year. What? The my state. Was no, I get. I get it. I'm just shocked that 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 happened. So my so state ahead. was yeah. once home to championships. You, you, yeah. you screwed up my my momentum. So now okay. I have to go. Sorry. My state was once home to championship hockey teams in all four of the following levels in the same year: professional level in the NHL, college level in Division One, high school level. He doesn't say what high school and the Pee Wee level. In the same year, champions. I'm going to go with Michigan because it. I Does Michigan it, have a professional hockey team? Yeah, the Detroit I don't follow Red hockey. Rings. Yeah. Oh, Detroit Red, Red Wings. Okay. Yeah. So I'm. Negative. Mm, so he did stump me. So Minnesota? Negative. I have no idea how some, many. It's not. Is it a really weird state and something nobody would guess? It. I think people who live in the state are pretty damn weird, yes. <laughs> That's not what I mean. I mean, is it is it a state you wouldn't associate with hockey? Uh, no, no. The oh. I think you would. Well, they got a professional hockey team, so you would associate it with hockey. Missouri, you're just going to keep make me keep guessing. I don't <laughs> no, know. you're going to have to go through all the, the yeah. states. It is Colorado. You're kidding. Your home state, Colorado. So the year was 2022. So the, and the uh, state, oh, and it just happened, and I didn't yeah, even realize it. I don't. Here, here are the teams: the Colorado yeah, Avalanche yeah, won the and Stanley and Cup, and DU. the DU Pioneers, NCAA Men's Champions, yep. Denver East Hockey High School National Champions, and I didn't even know they had a Pee Wee League. Pee Wee Junior Avs, Quebec International Champions. Wow. I, you know, I'm not an avid follower of hockey, but you'd think that was such an amazing event in one year that that all happened. That would be a little more publicized, but that's uh, fascinating. Yep. So, so anyways, yeah. he wanted me to ask you that. And I do thank the listener for mm-hmm. your, your uh, folder idea. I am going to try that. I don't mm-hmm. know when I'm going to get it set up, but it's just so brilliant in its simplicity. Mm-hmm. I like that. Perfect. Okay, so we do have one more question, and that is an Irma question. Okay, I think you're going to be able to get this one. I, I hope you can get this one. I think I know the answer too, but uh, I will defer it to you. Um, their hint, I've been listening, dear Jim and Chris, I've been listening to your show for two years and have learned so much. I'm from the state that is birthplace to seven presidents. And it's not Colorado or Utah. No, it, it wouldn't be anything out west here. No, it's got to be back it's east. It's got to be I'll a young state, or I mean an old state, not a young western state. Um, it is east of the Mississippi. And it has a big river that runs through it. Don't they all? <laughs> Everything <laughs> back there. Um, I'm... I just have to guess. Um, Kentucky. Kentucky? Has a president even come from Kentucky? I don't know. I'm just guessing back there. I don't know. I don't don't have states of birth for every president in my mind. I don't even know if a president ever came from Kentucky. So zero have come. I'm I'm looking for the one with seven, and I got the state with zero. 
No, I don't know. There may be a president from Kentucky. I'm going to have to Google that one. that's not the answer. (laughs) But no, it's the state just north of Kentucky. A state that I will be in in another few weeks. Ohio. Ohio. Oh. With the Ohio River, a big river. Seven from up. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, seven. Seven from one state. That's, That's pretty, yeah, that is impressive. All righty. They write, I have an interesting situation regarding our IRMA calculation. And for a new listener, if you're wondering, IRMA, that's the surtax that you pay on your Medicare premiums if your income exceeds certain levels. They're called tiers. But that's essentially IRMA. And people will pay that if their income rises above certain levels. I have an interesting situation regarding our IRMA calculation that I have not ever heard you address. I'm getting ready to file an amended tax return for 2021 to include additional income my S-Corp business received due to a retroactive tax credit. This income flows to my personal tax return and will result now in an increase to my 2021 taxable income. My husband is on Medicare. And the premiums he paid have been based on an IRMA bracket, which will change once I submit the amended return. Is there a form or something else that we should do to notify Social Security of this? What generally happens in this situation? Thanks for your show. I look forward to your answer. She gives her real name, but also signs her name, Georgette. Hmm. So, um, I don't know the answer to this definitively, but generally what happens when they've undercharged you for Irma and they discover it later, they will then notify you of this, I believe, give you the opportunity to pay what's owed in arrears or they're going to tack it on to your social security benefits, attach it there and reduce your social security benefits until you're caught up. So in this case, it's more of an extreme version of this. This is, this happens most often more quickly than what she's talking about. Um, here we're towards the end of 2023. This is kind of fixing an issue or, or amending uh, their, their tax return from, two years ago, which is how Irma is based, the 2023 Irma. The reason why she's talking about her 2021 tax year is that it's that tax year that determines the 2023 Irma uh, for Medicare. And um, she's getting ready to amend it. So it's reaching back a little farther. What I don't know is it's it's unlikely that the IRS and Social Security slash Medicare is going to have all this, all the dots connected and uh, everything known to all the proper departments till after 2023 is over. I don't know if they then consider that water under the bridge. I suspect not. They're pretty good now about notifying you and letting you know that uh, you either were overpaid in the past or undercharged in the past, and now it needs to be fixed. So I suspect it will get picked up in some process at some point, and then you'll get notified if, in fact, they determine that you would pay, should have paid a higher IRMA surcharge in 2023. Is there a form? Uh, No. Uh, The SSA 44 
is meant for life-changing events to ask them to um, appeal or ask them to reconsider their calculation for Irma and use more recent information uh, instead of old information if it will reduce your benefits. You don't ever, A, you wouldn't file SSA 44 to increase your, your Irma. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's meant as a uh, consideration to reduce it, and you have to have a life-changing event. That's the first um, uh, variable that has to be true. You've got to have one of these life-changing events. I don't. I haven't. Maybe they did have one, which actually might get them, you know, uh, get out of jail free card as well. Potentially, she doesn't say since 2021 if uh, their income has dropped due to reduction of work. Um, if that is true, if, if she's now maybe partially retired or, or something like that, there could be a life changing event in there or, or the husband retired since 2021, they might be able to say, don't look at my 2021 to determine. And you might be saying, wait a minute, it's really late in 2023, Chris, it's too late to do that. No, it's not. Uh, you can file it and then they will give you credits back. If they, if they determine that you should have paid lower Irma in 2023 because of, the life-changing event, which then led to lower income more recently, they will not look back to 2021 and they'll uh, credit you back for all the extra uh, premiums, the Irma surcharges you've been paying throughout 2023. So uh, that might be something to look at. Make sure you don't have a life-changing event since 2021 and that if your income is lower now in 2023, which it may or may not be, if she's still running the business and all that, maybe they're in, maybe her income's even higher. You know, that, maybe this that, that isn't the case. But I'm going to throw it out there as something to to look for to mitigate this. But they'll pick up on that, uh, or or maybe they won't. If if they don't pick up on it and it's kind of too far back now, and 2023 is over, uh, maybe they won't ever pick it up uh, at that point. So uh, all those tax information and how they know to charge you Irma is they get your tax return information from the IRS. So there's automatic connections back behind the scenes that are connecting your tax return to Medicare slash Social Security, who administers the Medicare system. And um, they, uh, they make those determinations. So you'll likely be getting a notice at some point and then we'll... Uh, be offered ways to pay any, you know, undercharged Irma surcharges at that point. All righty. So now we're going to get into <clears throat> a social, excuse me, a annuity question. We're going to try to do an annuity question every week. This one goes way back, Chris, to when we were doing our series uh, on annuities during National Annuity Awareness Month. Mm -hmm. And it's one that we are asked quite often because, folks, of the way Chris and I believe in using annuities. And let's just chat a little bit about that to add some, some clarity to this person's question, a little background, but also uh, as a refresher to people and for new listeners and understanding. Chris and I are not uh, annuity cheerleaders by any stretch. We, we don't really offer or sell many annuities in our practice. We, it's just used in very limited situations, very limited number of, of people. 
We firmly believe in protecting your minimum dignity floor, food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses. I've lumped them together and call them the minimum dignity floor. They're technically a lifestyle floor. And the minimum to me is also a misleading word. Dignity uh, is a little bit misleading. I wish I named it lifestyle, but we've called it MDF for years. We're probably not going to change. Minimum, I guess, isn't necessarily misleading, but it sometimes gets people thinking it's just the minimum amount to keep your head out of water, uh, to, to, to just make you survive in retirement towards the end without being in poverty. That's not what I mean. Minimum dignity floor or minimum lifestyle floor are the expenses to allow you as a retiree to keep enjoying the same standard of living that you had pre-retirement. That's Chris and I's goal. And when someone does a retirement analysis with us, or if you are doing it on your own as do-it-yourselfers and you're listening to this show to try to learn on your own, when someone does it with us, we recreate or or from a financial standpoint, what their comfort is, what their lifestyle is. What are you spending on food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care? So you can maintain the same type of vehicle. You can maintain your home. You can update it in the future with the same quality level of appliances you're used to. Things like that. We want that to continue through. We want it to, to maintain. We believe also passionately that those expenses should not be left to the whims of the equity markets or to investments in general, that they shouldn't be based on a safe withdrawal rate. And every year you have to constantly be worried about what the markets are doing, what geopolitical risk is doing, what the politicians in this country are doing, what the economy is doing, what the Fed is doing, all of these variables that in our younger years are annoyances to us, but in your older years as a retiree can really devastate your retirement. And you don't have the time as a retiree to recoup a loss being driven by all these factors that you can't control at all. And in retirement, you're not getting younger, stronger, and healthier. You're getting older, weaker, and less healthy. And I'm not sharing anything that we all don't know. We can deny it till the cows come home. We can convince ourselves it's always going to happen to someone else. It's never going to be me. I take care of myself. I eat healthy. I exercise. I take Geritol twice a day. None of this is going to happen to me. I got news for you. It will. And one of the things that will happen to you is your cognitive abilities will decline. We talk often of a study from Harvard that shows that in the Wall Street Journal article recently. Never referenced the Harvard article, Chris, but points out that age 53 is the age where the understanding of financial concepts begins to diminish in the human brain. And that's the exact same thing the Harvard study found about 12 years ago now, 13 years ago. And when I read that study, it was one of the only studies I ever downloaded. I didn't read it because it was in academic doublespeak. But the 
the summary at the beginning was was quite poignant, and I got everything I needed out of that very very good summary at the beginning. And I did glance through the studies. Not that I didn't totally read it, but you academics, Chris, you write in a weird language. But the <laughs> the Wall Street Journal article in this Harvard study, all of just pointing out what we all know but deny. As we age, our understanding of financial concepts will diminish and our ability to manage portfolios or even our interest in it is going to wane. One important aspect doesn't wane though and Chris likes to talk about this one from Texas Tech. Where am I going with this Chris? Well in that follow-up study after that Harvard uh, study that you mentioned Texas Tech found that people's confidence in their ability to make proper decisions does not decline. So it puts makes a really dangerous situation for people as they age where maybe their 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 computer, right, is not processing as well for making decision making, particularly with complex, you know, numbers and things like that, uh, but they don't realize it. So it really puts them in a vulnerable spot. Right. So where am I going with all this? Annuities fit into our approach to retirement to address a few issues. We believe your minimum dignity floor of food, utilities, transportation, housing, and healthcare expenses should not have to be cut during your retirement due to elements beyond your control that even transcend typical market volatility. All the issues, the black swans, if you will, that the industry calls them, that seem to happen with quite regularity. Black swans are far more common than people think. I always call them gray swans. They kind of cross between a black and a white. White ones are everywhere and the black ones are the bad. And a gray swan is everywhere. But the industry makes it sound like these black swan events are rare. They're not rare. They just are different You had the housing bubble crisis. You had COVID crisis. You have all these black swans that come out of nowhere. You can't control them. They're difficult to protect with diversification, as 2022 has shown. And generally speaking, when stocks are going down, no matter what kind of stocks you own, they're going to go down. And generally, when bonds are going down, no matter what kind of bonds you own, they're going to go down maybe to different degrees, but you're not getting as much diversification protection as you once used to, in my opinion. So we feel, because we know your ability to understand financial concepts is diminishing after 53. It's not a cliff, because it was a cliff. Both Chris and I wouldn't be on this podcast as we are over 53, and yours truly is actually 60 now. But I'm not naive into thinking I will be as sharp in another 10 years as I was 10 years ago when I was 50. I won't be. Because of that, because we know your ability to understand concepts will diminish, and we believe and feel strongly that the younger you needs to promise the older you that they will be taken care of. Food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care should not be left to chance. They should be left to guaranteed income streams. Social Security, 
pension and income annuity. Few people have pensions anymore. Those who do are generally government or union workers, and they generally still have some pretty damn good pension benefits, especially federal government workers and many state, not all state, but many state government workers. But for everyone else, you've got no pension. You do have Social Security, and that when you look at Social Security in isolation, that's why we spend so much time on Social Security on this show. When you look at Social Security in isolation to just your minimum dignity floor of food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care, it covers quite a bit of it. And for some people, all of it, until the crossover point, which is usually between 78 and 83, when the inflationary pressures of the MDF are greater than the Kohler adjustments to Social Security. And it's when we discover shortages, we tell people they should consider an income annuity. I just wanted to lay the groundwork again going forward of where we see annuities. I'm not going to do this on every Q&A show. I just want people to know now that I'm going to be trying to answer one annuity question a week and I've replaced one Social Security question with that annuity question. I want people to understand why annuities fit in our world alongside Social Security, which to us is the, the best, followed by pension followed by an income annuity. If you got no other option, that's all you have. But we don't mandate, even people who work with us, they run out and buy an income annuity, especially if we know the shortage, the income shortage, if our projections are indicating the shortage is going to be later in the future. Instead, as we try to help people determine their fund number, that, that budgetary number of their liquid portfolio, how much of it can they truly spend on discretionary fund expenses? As we mine through or peel back the skin of the onion of that and pull out minimum dignity floor and aging related and guaranteed inheritance and buffer, as we pull all those out to come up with the fund number, we can determine or come close to determining how much money they need to pull out of their portfolio to protect their minimum dignity floor. But we don't do what, Chris? We don't recommend people right away run out and do what with those dollars, especially if the income need is in the future. This ties into the question from this listener I'm going to get to, and we seem to get this question all the time. Can you know where I'm going with this? I do. Um, what's As Jim mentioned, it's quite common, actually, for people, once they turn on their Social Security, um, particularly with people that have uh, you know, a household with two wage earners in it that, have, uh, that each have Social Security benefits, uh, the combination of that, once they're both on, oftentimes does a pretty good, darn good job of covering their minimum dignity for for a while. Uh, but then in the future, there might be in the projections, because remember, we're, we're looking into the future here. This isn't something that's, that's known, and, and we have the precision down where we know exactly what year it's going to happen and the exact dollar amount and all that. That, is, that would be stretching it a lot, right? We're not claiming that we can, we can nail it like that, which is one of the reasons why we don't. There's several reasons, actually, but that's one of the reasons why we don't encourage people to then uh, rush out, maybe in their... Uh, early 60s when they're retiring or mid 60s when they're retiring and purchase an annuity to solve 
a secure income shortage that's projected in 15 years later at, at 80 maybe. Uh, but what we want the 65-year-old to do is set aside the money so that an 80-year-old can be confident that there will be enough money there to generate more secure income if the need still exists. The advantage of waiting is that if your life changes, maybe uh, one spouse passes away, maybe health concerns come up, so longevity isn't a particular concern for you anymore. Maybe you don't end up spending as much early as you thought, so your assets are very, very large by the time you hit 80. So there's really no practical way that you would ever run out, which kind of diminishes the need for an annuity because we're using it as longevity protection for the minimum dignity floor. And if that risk reduces to a small enough amount, then the argument for an annuity at all kind of goes away. So you don't know how that's all going to play out over time. There's just a lot of variables going on. We're just wanting you to make that promise to the older couple, uh, the, the older you, that you won't burn through all of the assets on fun in your go-go period and then leave them short for protecting the minimum dignity floor. And that's why we go through the, the process of determining what seems to be a reasonable amount to consider setting aside for this. And then we tell people not to dip into that uh, for the fun money. Okay. So Chris is correct, and that's what his question is revolving around. I'm surprised the number of times we get a question like this, and there's no right or wrong answer, but let's get to his question now that I've laid the groundwork. Hi, that was Jim. a lot of groundwork, just to acknowledge that. 14 <laughs> minutes of groundwork before we get to Perfect. the question. Hi, Jim. <laughs> yeah. I have been listening to your series on annuities, and I'm waiting for you to address an issue with regards to the timing of the purchase of a single premium immediate annuity. I understand your philosophy of waiting to purchase the older me to maintain control of the assets in case something changes. However, interest rates are at multiple year highs. I would assume the lump sum required to purchase annuities is decreasing. Does it make sense to lock in with a deferred annuity now as opposed to waiting X number of years until you might need the spear? What if somebody had less than five years until they anticipate needing the spear? Would that change your opinion? Would you still advise someone to wait? I understand timing interest rates is not advisable, but it's difficult for me to pass up the current opportunity. If rates do go down and premiums for spears rise, I fear the older me will be upset at the younger me for the decision. Thanks and love your show. So he's kind of asking folks, is the time frame going to impact our thoughts? Let me say, there is no right or wrong answer to this. We try to get you all to understand that. Just because we favor the flexibility of waiting and buying the annuity when you absolutely are certain you need it because so many things change and because the purchase of the types of annuities we favor are irrevocable, we like to make certain it's needed. 
So if somebody needed, if his ex wasn't five years from now, his ex was eight, 10, 12, 15, 20, I would encourage the person to wait. But it doesn't make it right or wrong. We're working with someone now who has crunched his own numbers, did his own work, and is pretty certain he's going to purchase some Culex now in his 60s which are a special type of deferred income annuity, irrevocable decision that you can purchase inside your IRA. Uh, We'll talk later. We've never done a show on Culex, so we'll probably have to do a show. (laughs) We'll probably have to do a show. If you're a new listener, I did a series on Culex, like three shows, I think. Five. I don't think it was five. I'm pretty sure it was five long Chris hasn't stopped bitching about it since I've done that. (laughs) I still have scars from that series. (laughs) So anyways, folks, we're working with someone right now who on his own has determined this. And he asked us for our opinion. And I told him, you know, I support what you're doing. He's very risk adverse. Him and his wife want the surety and the guarantees. They want to feel comfortable spending their fun money. But they feel uncomfortable doing it until they know for certain they've put a lot of protections in place for the older them. They've increased their buffer and reserves to very meaningful levels. And they're also going to be purchasing two Culex to give them additional income at age 80 and 85. And it's going to make them feel comfortable spending money now. I support it. I never tried to talk them out of it. We actually, if you remember, Chris, talked about this case on a group meeting plan, a group planning meeting. Mm -hmm. And us, you, me, and the junior planners involved, and I think we had a tax CPA there too, one of our CPAs, none of us saw a reason to try to tell this person no. It, It made perfect sense. It fit his situation. And if he's listening, he knows who he is. You do whatever you feel fits your situation. Mm -hmm. If you're doing it just to time interest rates, I do want to cautiously point out, everybody is getting excited because we're at 20-year highs in interest rates. Go back 30 or 40 years, though. Go back to the early 80s. We're no way near what interest rates were. You could buy in 81 a 30-year treasury bond paying 18%. I'm not saying interest rates are going to go to those levels, but four and a half on the 10-year could still go up more. But I can see it could still go down and down quickly especially if a black swan event hits and the Fed needs to stimulate the economy. At least they have room now to do that with interest rates. When interest rates were less than 1% and the Fed funds rate was at 0 to 25 bips, it was the overnight rather, it would have been very difficult for them to stimulate the economy without going negative in interest rates like Europe did at A few countries in Europe had to do not too long ago. So 
he needs to decide and you need to decide as this other person I just referenced with the QLAC, not even beginning until 80. Whatever makes you feel comfortable, that's the correct answer. Not what two yahoos from Colorado are saying on a podcast, but what makes you feel the most comfortable. Just remember, folks, you have to give the older you an explicit promise that their food, utilities, transportation, housing, and health care is taken care of. Whether that means buying the income annuity now, come hella high water, no matter what happens, that money is going to be there, or at least reserving those dollars and investing them appropriately and doing your homework on how much dollars the older you may need. And we explained on previous podcasts how to do that. Whichever strategy works for you, to me, is the right one. And the same with this listener. Now to his assessment, is five years going to change my opinion on this? It actually may. If somebody truly needs it, truly, no doubt in their mind, in five more years I need it or three more years I need it, if it would make you feel better locking in today's interest rates on a deferred income annuity, and they'll be giving you those interest credits as part of your income payment, if those rates are reasonable and there's ways that you can, you can't ask the insurance company, what's the embedded interest rate you're crediting me? They don't give that out. But you can kind of figure it out with some backward calculations. And if what you figure out is a reasonable amount of interest to earn, it's probably going to be less than what you could get right now on your own. But if it's still high enough and reasonable and you want to lock that in, I personally have no problem with that. What it says you, Chris? No, I agree. Once you're that close to, and it's it's like driving through the fog and coming up on your destination as as uh, you get closer and closer, you start to make it out and it becomes clearer and clearer the closer you get. And there's a point where you should have probably reasonable clarity on how your life has evolved and, and what the situation is going to be maybe five years out. It's, it's still a ways out and stuff still happens. But I think you're getting close enough where it's certainly more worthy of consideration if you'd been sitting on the fence prior to that. Uh, to take a look at it, especially if interest rates to you are particularly attractive and the, and the offerings that, that as you shop around for them are, are attractive enough to you. If it, if it um, makes you sleep better at night, knowing that's taken care of and set and all that. And, and you uh, kind of in your mind have thought about the things, if they, what would make you regret this decision? And those things don't really bother you that much. You're, they're not like, you know, sometimes if things don't turn out, you, you're, you're going to regret it tremendously and never live with yourself uh, after that for making such a horrible decision. If if that isn't facing you and it's just, well, I might regret it a little bit, but I've got this income coming in. So it's not like I've made a horrible mistake and I don't have something. I'm, I'm always going to have the income that's coming in. If it's more than I need, yeah, I can still spend it, right? It, you know, uh, if it's it's a small regret that could come out of that, then um, as long as you've assessed it and weighed, you know, have the pros and cons and, and you really prefer uh, pulling the trigger at that point, I don't see anything uh, inherently wrong with doing that at all. Okay, perfect. All righty, let's get into an IRA question. 
Let's see, it's more of a trust question, but it has to do with an IRA as well. This hint, I guarantee you, you are not going to guess the state. Mm. And I question if he's right. We don't vet these, but when I saw the answer, I couldn't believe it. And he actually said, that's right, and he gave the name of the state. So, I'm a new listener and love the podcast. Your ability to break down complex topics into useful information is outstanding. I live in the state, you ready for this? That is the leading producer of soybeans, corn, and hogs. Not a leading producer, the leading producer is what he claims of soybeans, corn, and hogs. Any idea of the state? My mind went directly to Iowa. That's where my mind went. Is that your answer? No, because you said you couldn't (laughs) believe it. So you've talked me out of Iowa. Um, Maybe it's just a sheer size state. Maybe it's Texas. Okay, you say Texas. Illinois. Really? And he wrote, that's right, Illinois. I would have never guessed Illinois in a million years. Not over Iowa. There's Corn? Too, too much land no taken way. up by cities in, in I know. Illinois, there's no but... way. I, I just... Huh. If there's an Illinoisian out there, or whatever the hell you call yourselves, who wants to confirm this, or an Iowan who wants to dispute it, but... I don't think of Illinois when I think of corn. I think of Iowa. I've driven through Iowa. It's nothing but corn. Anyways, okay. the number one produ- the leading producer well, of soybeans, uh, corn, Google and already corn. disagrees. Iowa is number one in corn. Illinois is second. Um, so it's up there, certainly, but Iowa corn production. Um, Maybe they, he means 90% all three. It has of, to be. Maybe it's in a combination of the three, yes, but not individually. But if you add up all the three, then, uh, yeah, Iowa produces, looks like about 10% more corn than Illinois. So Illinois is right up there. Then I, it drops off tremendously. Imagined. Yeah, then it drops off tremendously after that. And, uh, yeah, anyway, this isn't the corn okay. show, so. Right. <laughs> okay, it's a very short question. I'm 58 years old and finalizing the legal documents for my estate planning. I will have a will, a trust, a power of attorney, etc. While I will put most assets into the trust, I am unsure about my IRA and 401k due to Secure Act 2. It is my understanding that a trust is considered a non-designated beneficiary and thus requires an immediate distribution upon my death. Unlike a designated beneficiary who can withdraw the funds over a period of time, please provide clarity on these, uh, excuse me, on the approach and ramifications. Thank you. She gives her a name. We'll call her Georgette. I'm not going to get into the nuances of, of trust because that, that would be EDU shows and I could do a whole series on those, multiple series. But I do want to just address a few of her things. What she's talking about, folks, is creating a trust and naming the trust as beneficiary of what the industry calls qualified accounts, 401ks and IRAs. Technically speaking, only the 401k is a qualified account, but IRAs get lumped into that category as well. They are just 
the accounts that get special tax treatment. So she's saying she has heard that if she names a trust as beneficiary of these accounts because of Secure Act 2, she's going to have to, or her beneficiaries will have to uh, liquidate them quite quickly. I have news for you, listener. Long before Secure Act 2, long before Secure Act 1, trusts were always a unique item when named as beneficiaries of an IRA. You are correct, listener, when you state, it is my understanding that a trust is considered a non-designated beneficiary. Remember what we said many times, folks, wherever you see the word designated uh, words, designated beneficiary, replace it with what word, Chris? Human. Human. So she has essentially said, it is my understanding that when a non-human is named as beneficiary, will require an immediate distribution upon my death. That part is false. It's not immediate. A trust is a non-human. But the IRS has ruled long before secure. If the trust is a qualified see-through trust, that's the IRS's verbiage, because they want to see through the trust and make sure the trust, they can easily find the items they are looking for. If the trust is structured properly, and if the IRS pulls the trust at your death and wants to audit it and make sure this is working correctly, if it has all the elements it needs, legal under state law is one of them, irrevocable after your death is the second. The third is all beneficiaries are immediately identifiable. And the fourth one is that the trust documents are submitted to the custodian of the IRA by October 30th of the year following your death. If all of those elements, and goodness, I'm questioning myself now if it's September 30th or October 30th. I believe it's October 30th. Google that real quickly on that trust. It's either September or October. If, as long as your trust has all those elements, even though it's a non-human, the IRS will allow it to be treated as a human for all intent and purposes for payouts after your death. Now, prior to secure, that meant you could create a trust, name it as beneficiary of your IRA, and stretch those payments over your death. And the trust would act as a gatekeeper to keep the beneficiaries from maybe spending down what could be a multi-million dollar IRA inheritance. And you wanted to ensure that your beneficiaries stretched the payments out and didn't just spend it like drunk sailors on shore leave. So they would create conduit trusts that would accomplish this. And as long as the trusts had all the correct elements in place, the IRS would allow it to almost be considered as a human, even though it was a non-human, and allow you to stretch or your beneficiaries to stretch. Now, I'm glossing over dozens of gotchas and, and rules and regulations. This is very basic, my description. But listener, post-secure, post-secure one, kind of 
killed that ability to do because now you have to, or your beneficiaries would have to close the IRA within 10 years, whether there's a trust beneficiary or not. Did you find the answer? Is it September 30th or October 30th? I think I'm almost there. You got to dig okay. for this. Uh, and I only want, I want to go to a trustworthy source. There's a lot of no bad. No pun intended. And- trustworthy. Yeah, that? No exactly. pun intended. Nice. Okay, so I'll continue opining uh, as, as Chris's research. I'm pretty sure it's October 30th. Anyways, back to what I'm saying. So in your question, listener, if your trust was created correctly, if your attorney crossed o- all the... October huh? 31st. October so 31st. Oh, day Halloween. Yep, was Halloween. Yep. Okay. So if your attorney put everything in place correctly and you have a qualified see-through trust, there is no problem, technically no problem, naming it as a beneficiary, even though it is a non-human. So do keep that in mind. The ability to stretch has been greatly curtailed under SECURE. So the ability for your beneficiaries of the trust to stretch are going to be dependent on if they are a eligible designated beneficiary or human that's eligible to stretch or not. If they're not a human that's eligible to stretch, if they're a non-eligible designated beneficiary or non-eligible human, then they will have to close or the IRA will have to be closed within 10 years after your passing. But let's go back and assume Your trust didn't qualify. It didn't dot all its I's and cross all its T's. And it is not going to be allowed to be, for all intent and purposes, treated as a human. Now you do have what you said, a non-designated beneficiary, a non-human. Even in that case, listener, your trust excuse me, your IRA would not have to pay out immediately. Even though the beneficiary is a non-human, it doesn't have to close. It being your IRA doesn't have to close and pay out to that trust immediately. It's going to depend on your age when you die. If you died before your required beginning date, which is April 1st of the year following the year, you reach required minimum distributions. I no longer like to use an age because the ages have been changed from 70 and a half to 72 to 73 and eventually 75. So your required beginning date is April 1st of the year following the year you reach the age of having to take required minimum distributions. If you die before that date, a non-human has to close the IRA in five years. That's the five-year rule. No distributions during year one through four, but by year five, the entire IRA would have to close and pay to your trust. What if you died after your required beginning date and you have a non human as beneficiary, in this case, a trust that does not 
qualify as a see-through trust in the eyes of the IRS and therefore is considered ineligible to be beneficiary of an IRA. What if that happens? Here, it gets very intriguing because it's quite possible your IRA could stay open, will definitely stay open more than five years, could actually stay open more than 10 years. Because here's what happens. Depending on the age you die, you're going to, not you, you're dead. The trustee of the trust looks at your ghost life expectancy. The IRS says if a non-human inherits an IRA and the IRA owner dies after their required beginning date, the non-human, in this case a trust that doesn't qualify as a see-through trust, can use your remaining life expectancy. That's why they call it the ghost life expectancy. I don't have the single life table in front of me. Do you, Chris? What's the new 2022 single life table for someone who dies right at 73? What's a 73-year-old's remaining life expectancy? I guarantee you, folks, it's more than 10 years. Uh, did you say 70 or 73-year-old? 73, because that's the required beginning date now. 73, 16.4. 16.4. The trust could actually keep that IRA open for 16 more years. Uh, technically, it would be, uh, what's for a 74-year-old? Because remember, you begin the year 15. after. 15.6. 15. So 15 and a half years, almost 16 years. Significantly more than 10. In fact, there's been talk about purposefully creating trusts that won't Mm -hmm. meet the IRS uh, definition and are purposefully defective. So they could use a longer payout period, at least until what age? What age does it become 10 years or less? 82. So 82. Uh, if you die at 81, so once you reached 81 years old, you lived through that year, um, then the 10 years starts to be better. So you could have wording in the trust that was maybe vague on the beneficiaries or something like that until 81. And then at 81, you instruct your lawyer to change the defective part in there so that it then becomes a qualifying uh, now, we're, we're, just, we're just opining out loud. We are not attorneys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that, yeah, I guarantee yeah. you there are attorneys thinking of strategies like that. Yeah. Now, before you get all excited, if you create a trust like that that doesn't qualify, but if that trust holds the assets, you might be able to, quote, unquote, stretch for a long period of time, but you will still lose a great deal of those assets to taxes, and that's a, a a topic for another day. I just wanted this listener to know it's not going to pay out immediately. Right. And if your trust was worded correctly, it will be allowed to pay out based on the eligibility of the beneficiary or beneficiaries, plural, of the trust. If it's not created properly, it might actually work to your benefit if you die Uh, between 73 and 81, as Chris said. Uh, If you die after 81, it's not going to be to your benefit. It's very unique, very convoluted, very challenging to remember. 
they certainly are not making these rules any easier every time they pass a new law, uh, which frustrates the hell out of me. But anyways, when I got this question, I thought this is a cool question. I can go down a little bit of a rabbit hole and wrap up the show. Perfect. That brings us to a perfect stopping spot. So we kind of were all over the place on this show, lots of different topics, uh, which was kind of fun. Um, I think it was beneficial, particularly to new listeners, for you to do the lengthy description of kind of how we view minimum dignity floor and why we value secure income so much in protecting that minimum dignity floor. Um, so, yeah, any um, anything we need to let everybody know for next week or just standard Q&A show? For no, standard week? stuff for next okay. week. We'll finish up with the... the um the Ed Slot uh, as our next EDU. I do want to say we we have new CPAs working for us at the firm, and we're going to be introducing you to one of them named Paul, and we may introduce uh, the others. Uh, one is named Alan, and the other is named Steve, even though Steve hasn't started yet. Uh, he will be shortly. Because um, yours truly will be out traveling for five weeks. I will be leaving for um, a retirement convention. I don't know what, what you want to call it. Uh, I, don't, I don't really know if I should name what it is or not. Uh, down in Dallas, um, the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th, something like that. Uh, and then from there, I'm going to be flying to Massachusetts to spend eight days with family. And then from there, I'm going to fly to Philly and spend four-ish days, I think, uh, in Philly. I hope those those riots that they had the other day with all those shops being broken into and not going on. It's not far from where we're staying. I looked on, on Google. So hopefully Philly will get their act together and it will be a nice, nice trip for us. But I'll be down in Philly for the Charles Schwab conference. Uh, and then from Philly, I'm going to fly into Cincinnati and I'm going to spend about two weeks, maybe a little bit more than two weeks um, in the Cincinnati, Northern Kentucky area. I already have hikes planned in the Red River Gorge for the weekend of November 11th. And also, um, if I can get into the group, um, they, I'm on the quote-unquote wait list. But if, uh, if I can get in, I'll hike again uh, in Berea, Kentucky uh, as well. I remember when I stayed at Daniel Boone Inn, only to yeah. find out Daniel Boone wasn't even there and he never even opened the inn. Um, but it'll be in that area again. So I'm looking forward to hiking in Kentucky while I'm there. And of course, exploring, uh, the Cincinnati area. Cause I am still thinking of relocating there. Uh, a few people in the area have reached out to me. We're interested in maybe getting together for a lunch or a coffee or a dinner. If you are in the Cincinnati area or Northern Kentucky area, or when I go to if I can get into the group where we go to Berea, I'll actually be driving alone. If I get into the, the other group, I'll be driving with a bunch of people. But if you're anywhere between Cincinnati and Berea off of the highway. Anyways, what I'm saying is if there's people out there and y'all want to get together, I can't promise I'm going to have the time, but reach out. And if I do have the time, love to meet with podcast listeners, grab a coffee or a dinner or a lunch or whatever. We can talk bad things about Chris. That'll be fun. So... Anyways, because of all that, I may not be able to record every show remotely. Uh, Chris and I will try to record some before I leave, like we did when he was gone. You were gone for what, two weeks or three weeks? Two weeks. Two weeks. 
So we tried to record some shows while he was gone. But I spoke to Paul the other day, and Paul travels a lot. Paul is a phenomenal CPA. I am just amazed at the knowledge that this man has. I'm so happy that we found him. He lives in Paca, Colorado. And uh, he's retired, and he works more retired, I think, than he did when he was working. And uh, even though he's retired, he still is very active CPA and uh, is going to be doing a lot of our tax planning and a lot of our tax prep. But my goodness, have you ever met a man that travels more than Paul? He seems to be all over the place. He's living his life. That's good. He definitely is definitely living his life. God bless him. But I spoke to him the other day as we were going through our tax prep that we're going to be doing this year. And uh, he's very, very receptive to coming on the podcast during my absence and doing a lot of tax questions with Chris. Uh, it's just when he started listing his availability, I said to him, I was like, you need to chat with Chris because I'm not sure you guys are even going to have the time to record. But hopefully the two of you can uh, if I'm gone. If not, Chris is very astute at doing it on his own, and he'll probably get through a bunch of Social Security questions. Anyways, that was the biggest thing that I wanted to announce to people. I'll be in Dallas. And some listeners to this podcast know I will be in Dallas. You will uh, be there as well. So make sure you, you uh, look look me up. You should see me there over the three days and say hi. And then... Um, in Philly, I think someone reached out to me already about Philly. Philly, I'm not going to have much time uh, because I'll be at the Schwab conference uh, pretty much consistently. Um, if I had any time at all, it'll be on the day I fly in, and that's pushing it. But then in Kentucky and Ohio, I'll have much more time. Anyways, that's okay. about it. Sounds good. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. And we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media, and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and Associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor.